Amen. You know, when your car starts shaking and you're driving along and you realize something's off, a lot of times it's the alignment, or so Ron Landis, our uh, facilities director and resident mechanic, tells me. There he is back there. The alignment can be off. I feel like Sunday mornings we come in here and our hearts are aligned that we realize that our soul's joy and glory and crown have been all over the place, that our hearts are, thank you, idle factories just cranking out counterfeit gods one after the other. And we come here on Sunday and we are reminded that our soul's glory, joy, and crown are in none other than in Jesus Christ, our fairest Lord Jesus. Thank you, Aaron, and praise team and choir for that wonderful reminder and heart alignment where our hearts need to be. We're going to continue our series in Isaiah today, and I'm excited because we're, we're kind of closing this whole first section uh, this month in the book of Isaiah, and we're going to start this kind of glorious new section in chapter 40 starting uh, in next month. But this is kind of the, the whole summary statement of the prophet Isaiah over this whole first section. If you've been paying attention, and I hope that you have throughout this series, that you've probably noticed this theme that runs throughout these last 30 or so chapters that we've been in. You know, the prophet is talking to this very fearful people that are scared of this existential threat, the Assyrian army that is marching towards them and, and just taking out uh, city after city as they come west towards uh, Judah and Israel. Remember, the kingdom had been split by this point. You have 10 tribes in the north, the kingdom of Israel, or Ephraim, as sometimes Isaiah refers to it. And then in the south, you have Judah. That's where uh, the tribes of Benjamin and Judah are. That's where Jerusalem is, the, the city of, of David. All that is, is there in the kingdom of Judah. And of all uh, of God's people are faced with this choice when the Assyrian army shows up, where will you run to? Where will you run? When Jude and I went to Home Depot, we were uh, looking for uh, a gift for Mother's Day, because that's where you go for a Mother's Day gift, right? Home Depot. Uh, and this is a month or so ago, and Morgan had said she wanted a bird feeder. So we got, you know, about the biggest bird feeder we could find, and uh, some big bag of bird seed, and filled it up, and hung it in a, a Japanese maple in our backyard. And it was great for a few weeks. We had cardinals and, and, and bluebirds and chickadees that would all come and, and eat at the bird feeder until, of course, what happens inevitably? The squirrels come. The big bad squirrels come. And they knock the whole thing over and bird seed goes everywhere. And, uh, you know, the chipmunks love that because then the chipmunks came out and were eating the bird seed off the ground and all these birds. But it's been fun. Morgan said it's like a zoo out there, all these animals uh, in the country where we live, you know, five minutes that way. Uh, <laughs> and our dog, of course, can't stand it. We have a bay window that looks right out in the backyard and, and she's just growling and, and whining and wants to go out. And as soon as you release that back door, she takes off and all the animals go scurrying for cover. The, the chipmunk, you know, I think May said one lives under the grill and one lives under the, the back hole in the fence. And uh, the, the squirrels, of course, take to the trees and the, the birds take to the sky, but they all scatter. That's the image of God's people here. They're all scattering. Where are you going to go for safety? Are you going to try to fly? Are you going to try to hide under the grill? Are you going to try, where are you going to go 
because Annie is bigger and stronger than any of these other little backyard animals, and she will devour anything that she gets a hold of, I guarantee you. God's people in this moment of history are scrambling for safety. Some of them want to go to Egypt. Yes, they're former slave masters because they think they can protect them with their mighty chariots and horsemen. Others want to make a deal with Syria, a, a, a partnership, an unholy alliance against the Assyrian army. So when they're faced with a crisis, both kingdoms, Israel and Judah, just go into self-preservation mode. They automatically begin looking for whatever solution seems most pragmatic and most effective in that given moment to their worldly minds. Here in these last chapters of this first major section of Isaiah, we're going to see the Lord really drive this point home. To whom will you turn in a crisis? To whom will you put your trust? To whom will you look to save you in that day when you are faced with an overwhelming crisis? To whom will we look to for salvation? Will we run for cover to familiar places that have never really offered us true peace and security before? Or will we choose to trust in the sovereign Lord over all creation? The choice is before us still. So let's set the scene today. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 33. If you want to turn your Bibles to Isaiah 33 today. Before we jump into our text, let me just set up what's happening. Uh, this is the point in Isaiah where Assyria has actually shown up. It's too late to run. They've actually arrived in Judah. And there's, there's nowhere to hide. And suddenly God's people instead of turning to their Lord who has established them there in Jerusalem, they look for practical answers again. They become functional atheists. They operate as if God is not part of the equation. Instead of getting on their knees and crying out for deliverance, they decide to bribe the Assyrians. They're going to pay them off. Look at 2 Kings. This is how uh, the book of 2 Kings describes what's going on here in Isaiah chapter 33. This is chapter 18. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, he was a good king, but he messed up here. Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I have done wrong. Withdraw from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will bear. Meaning, whatever you want me to pay, I will pay it. And the king of Assyria required of Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. That's his price. And Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. At that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the doorpost that Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. How low the people of God have fallen that they resort to robbing the treasuries of God in the temple and they resort to stripping the gold off of the temple itself in order to bribe 
their enemies at the gate. How low they've come. And not only is it humiliating for God's people, but it's doubly dishonoring to the Lord. First off, they've treated him as a worthless ally, as if he couldn't save them. They've neglected him completely. And then secondly, they make him pay the bill for their disloyalty. But they don't see it that way. They think, yes, what a brilliant solution we've come up with. We sure did good on that one. We saved the day. We knew there was plenty of silver in the treasury of the Lord. We knew there was gold on the temple. We could always use that. What a brilliant solution we've come up with. They think they're very proud of themselves, probably patting each other on the back. Well played, sir. Well done. That was close. It's a good thing we had all that treasury from the Lord's house. Now the Assyrians will go away and leave us in peace. But they didn't know who they were dealing with. The Assyrians had never made an honest deal in their lives. Of course they weren't going to leave. They didn't march all that way out there to leave these puny Judean cities standing. They're going to attack. They just got the gold first. And then they're going to attack. As if they're going to honor some kind of deal with Jerusalem. Hezekiah had made a deal with the devil, and as you know, that never works out. Apparently, they had no idea what was going on, because when the leaders of Jerusalem realize they've been duped, then they finally realize they have nowhere to go. They're out of options. They've hit rock bottom. So they begin to repent. They begin to cry out on their knees, oh no, we've made a, a horrible error. We have missed calculated terribly. We tried to save ourselves and we didn't even factor God into the equation. They finally realized they have nothing left, nowhere to turn except to the holy sovereign Lord. I've heard it said you don't realize that God is all you need until what? Until God is all you have. You don't realize that God is all you need until God is all you have until you're out of options. My evangelism professor in seminary, Dr. Lyle Dorset, godly man, very wise man, he tells the story. He's an Anglican priest now, and he's wise, and he used to run the Billy Graham Center at Wheaton College, just an amazing man. But he says that one morning as a young man, he woke up on the floorboard of his car, surrounded by bottles of booze, empty bottles, and he had no idea how he'd gotten there. He had no idea what had happened in the last 24 hours. He'd hit rock bottom. And he realized in that moment he needed a savior, that he could not save himself. I told you, Eddie, this sounds familiar to recovery stuff. I was telling Eddie this morning, this, this is, people in recovery know they need a savior. It's the, the first step is that you can't save yourself. I'm paraphrasing, but you can't save yourself. People in recovery know that. Do we know that? If you're not in recovery, that's where we're headed today. Really important to understand that. So these, these people in Jerusalem finally realize they too have hit rock bottom. Therefore, Isaiah 33 is for those of us who have turned to false gods to save us. For those of us who have tried to save ourselves. For those of us who've made a mess of things. If you've never put your trust in false gods in an attempt to save yourself in a time of crisis, odds are you will find yourself in such a situation one day. 
How will God receive you in that moment? Will he scold you and say, I told you. All you had to do was put your trust in me. I was here the whole time. You had all you needed. You silly, stubborn child. After all I've done for you. Is that who our God is? That's probably who I am. That's not who our God is. Thanks be to God, our God runs to meet us as we drag ourselves back to him. Puts the best robe around our shoulders. Puts the ring on our finger. Who kisses us and says, kill the fattened calf. My son, my child who was dead is now alive. That's what God says, just like he said to my seminary professor, welcome back. I've been seeking you out. Will he remind you of his good plans for you, that he has a purpose for you as you renew your faith and your trust in him? I think you will. What we're gonna see today in our text is the way back to God. Some of you may have found yourselves far from the Lord lately. Here's the way back to God. It's, it's a, a, a matter of repentance, yes. Last week we saw the way back to God is through remembering and repenting. But today we're gonna get into this transformation of how we perceive things. The renewal of our mind. The New Testament talks about those of us who've been born again in Christ have a renewed mind that we understand things differently from those who have not been born again. That we have a new understanding, a new perception. Perception is everything. And the understanding of the things around us will be transformed as we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Point number one then, the way back to God involves changing how we understand our trust how we understand what we're betting our lives on. How we understand where we're putting our, uh, our, our hopes and dreams and beliefs for everything. Look at Isaiah chapter 33, verse 1. Ah, you destroyer. This is God talking to Assyria. You who yourself have not been destroyed. You traitor whom none has betrayed. You know from, from history that Assyria marched over all these cities and they just took what they wanted to, they lied, they cheated, they stole, and they didn't care. And what's worse is they got away with it. No one held them to account, no one stopped them. They always betrayed people, and they never got betrayed. But God says, your time has come. Look at verse, the rest of verse one. When you've ceased to destroy, you will be destroyed. And when you have finished betraying, they will betray you. As God's people humble themselves, as they cry out to the Lord, Lord, we're out of options, save us. The Lord says, okay, now it's time. The Lord says, let's do this. Assyria, you who have lied and cheated and stolen, you're about to be lied to, you're about to be cheated, and you're gonna be stolen from. You're gonna be betrayed, and you're ultimately going to be destroyed. The people's repentance changes everything. When they finally start to trust the one that they've long called king, but didn't actually look to as king, it changes everything for their fortunes. It's a very different song they're singing now. Look at verse two. Oh Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm, our strength every morning, our salvation in the time of trouble. It's a very different song they're singing. 
a very different tune as they look to the Lord. Now that God is all they have, as God has always been, he is all that they need. Look at verse three. At the tumultuous noise, peoples flee. When you lift yourself up, O Lord, nations are scattered. Not just Assyria, the whole world flees before the presence of the Almighty God. These people have a renewed confidence in God's ability to rescue them, to deliver them. Their trust has been properly replaced, not replaced, but placed again in the sovereign God, the only one who can rescue them. He's the one who sent Assyria in the first place. Remember that? Assyria is just a tool in God's hand. He's the one who raised Assyria up and brought them to Jerusalem in order to judge his rebellious children and bring them back to himself. And you can tell it's starting to click. They're starting to get it. Now in verse five, the Lord is exalted for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion, the holy city of God, Jerusalem, with justice and righteousness. And he will be the stability of your times. Do we need stability in our times? Whew. Abundance of salvation, wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. The richest thing that Jerusalem has is a rightful reverence of God. The most valuable thing that they possess is knowing who God is. So the question then is our treasure in anything of this world? political power, or is it in fearing the Lord, properly revering God as God, understanding who we are and who God is? Will it take us losing everything to realize that God is all we ever needed, that God is our greatest treasure, whether we realize it or not? In order to get to that point, we must put our trust in the one who is almighty. Don't wait until it gets to that moment where you have everything taken from you, because it will happen. Let's change how we understand our trust. Second point, in order to get back to God, we have to understand our own brokenness. Look at verses seven and eight. Behold, their heroes cry in the streets. The envoys of peace weep bitterly. The people in Jerusalem are crying out now in the streets. The highways lie waste. The traveler ceases. Covenants are broken. Remember, Assyria said, yeah, we'll do that deal. We'll sign the document. Nope, broke it. Cities are despised. There is no regard for humanity. That's the apocalyptic picture that Isaiah is painting of what Jerusalem becomes apart from God. Streets are empty. Martial laws declared. All the old rules have gone out the window. It's the Wild West, only in an apocalyptic way. The covenants and the deals they made with Assyria and with Egypt and with Israel and, and Syria, all those deals are null and void. The truth is that that's where we inevitably end up apart from the Lord. Deep down, we all know there's something wrong with the world. If we're honest, we know there's something wrong with us. We call this sin. But we deceive ourselves and we, we try to say things like, I'm okay, you're okay. We read all those self-help books and now the, the term is self-care. You gotta you know, engage deeply in self-care. 
It's true. God rested on the seventh day. I'm not knocking self-care. I went and played golf this week and I, you know, went for a run. All those things are good to do. But when we make self-care an idol, that's a problem. That's a problem. When we care more for self than we do God, that's a problem. I saw a satirical article uh, this week that said, a woman shocked to discover self-care routine is cause of all her health issues. The woman is said to be quoted as saying, all the self-care bloggers and books say the same thing. Say yes to what you want. That's what I did. And then out of nowhere, my doctor tells me I have type two diabetes. <laughs> I've said it before and I'll say it again. The gospel is that we are more broken, that we're more flawed than we ever imagined possible. But at the same time, we are more loved and more accepted than we ever dared to dream or hope in the Lord's grace. Both of those things are true. We need to understand them in order to get a full picture of the gospel, to understand what the Lord has really done for us. Sometimes it takes hitting rock bottom for us to realize it. Once we understand that we are not in fact okay apart from Christ, then we can begin to enter into the amazing grace of God. When we come to that place where we realize our brokenness, when we know that we cannot save ourselves, when we're defeated, when we're downcast, when we're disgraced, that's the moment when God comes in and moves in power. That's the moment of the breakthrough. Look at verse 10. Here's what the Lord says. Now I will arise. Once the streets are filled with people crying out to him, now I will arise, says the Lord. Now I will lift myself up. Now I will be exalted. For you will not delight. This is we're gonna, Psalm 51 we're going to get to in a second. But the point God's making is that he wants to intervene in your life and in my life with his decisive now. Now I'm going to come in and, and I will be revealed as God. Our part is only to cry out in the streets, like verse 7 said. God doesn't need us to, to, to give him extravagant sacrifices or to, uh, you know, make some big deal about how much we're giving to the Lord. All he wants is for us to recognize our need for him. That's why Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. That means blessed are the spiritually bankrupt. They offer nothing spiritually. They bring nothing to the table spiritually for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The Bible's clear about what happens when you confess your brokenness to the Lord. Remember uh, Micah 6.8, what does the Lord require of you? Does he want 10,000 rivers of oil? Does he want your firstborn? No, he, all he wants you to do is to do justice, to love mercy and walk humbly with your God. That's what is required of you. What happens when we have a broken spirit? Psalm 51, David after Bathsheba, that whole incident. Look at what David confesses. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God, the real sacrifices, what God desires from us are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite, that means sorry, you know, as parents, we want our kids to be sorry over their sin, right? So we'll say, Isaiah, say you're sorry. I'm sorry. 
You're not sorry. You're just saying it. Say it like you mean it. You can't force a kid to do that, can you, parents? That's how God must feel with us. Oh, I'm sorry, God. <laughs> really contrition, uh, genuine contrition in our hearts. Oh, God, you will not despise. God will not turn away genuine contrition. That's what he desires from us. That's controversial stuff in our current culture, right? Our kids are taught to believe in themselves, that they can do anything, that they don't need anyone to help them, that they can pull themselves up by their bootstraps. And nobody wants to be a failure. Nobody wants to be broken. Nobody wants to be weak. Nobody wants to be flawed. But here's how this works. As the Apostle Paul discovered in 2 Corinthians 12, when we are weak, then we are strong in his perfect power. God's favor does not rest on those who think they have it all together. In a world full of social media posts that are inherently superficial, it's tempting to, to want to do and want to say and want to wear all the right things in order to be successful, but Jesus can't heal those that don't even know that they're sick. Remember what he said in Matthew chapter 9, verse 12 and 13. Jesus said that those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. If you think you have it all together, you have no need for a savior. What good is it to say, dear Savior, come, if there's nothing you need rescue from? That leads us to our third point uh, in coming back to God, understanding what our ultimate allegiance is all about. You know, it's hard for us as Americans to talk about allegiance without thinking of the flag. We grew up, you know, pledging allegiance to the flag. We're, we're taught as young children that uh, you know, kings are tyrants. You know, George III was the, the guy who tried to, you know, enact taxation without representation, and we rebelled against the tyrant, and we're free from monarchies. I've walked the Freedom Trail in Boston and, uh, you know, reveled in, in the Patriots' acts who believed in a free nation. Morgan and I watched The Crown on Netflix, you know, and uh, you kind of roll your eyes and scoff at these silly monarchies, you know, like, oh, I'm so glad we don't live in a monarchy. It's outdated and silly. But the truth is we all serve a king. We all serve a king. I'm not talking about Joe Biden. <laughs> I'm talking about our ultimate loyalty, our ultimate allegiance. It, it lies with whoever we see as on the throne of our lives. And usually, it's ourselves. Usually it's us. I am the king of my own life most of the time. I want to rule, I want to reign as if I'm in charge. But we've been talking these last four months or so about coming out of this idea that, that, that we can be self-sufficient, that we can save ourselves. We're starting to see the all-sufficiency of Christ and of his kingdom when we put our trust in him, when we confess our real brokenness and how deeply we are flawed, then God moves in power and then we learn to live more fully into his kingdom as a loyal subject of the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Look at verses 13 and 14 here in Isaiah 33. Hear you who are far off what I've done, and you who are near, acknowledge my might. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? What we're seeing here is that God has indeed established an all-consuming fire on the altar outside the temple in Jerusalem. God's holiness is indeed an all-consuming fire that burns away any impurities that come before his presence. I think we often think of God as my co-pilot. Have you seen those bumper stickers? We think of God as my buddy. We think of God as the one who, you know, makes me feel good. We got songs like in the garden, right, Aaron? Or, you know, he walks with me and talks with me. That, maybe that's true and that's good. God does make me feel good. And I do walk and talk with God. I think that's a good thing. But it's important to understand what Lucy Pevensey learned in The Lion and the Witch in the Wardrobe when she's in the home of Mr. and Mrs. Beaver and she hears of Aslan, the true mighty king of all of Narnia, and she starts to, you know, recoil as they talk about his massive teeth and claws. And then she uh, finally asks, is he safe? And Mrs. Beaver laughs, and she says, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than me or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, asks Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. He's the king, I tell you. The problem is that we fear the wrong things. We're more afraid of what people will think of us than what God will think of us. We fear the overwhelming circumstances in our lives, the Assyrias who show up at our door, the crises that come inevitably. We blame God for our problems and say things like, God, where are you? Why won't you help me? I went to church three times last month. I gave money. Why won't you do more for me? But when the truth of the holiness of God gets in our hearts, we start to see things differently. Our allegiance shifts from our own petty and, and, and frail concerns to much bigger things. We start to say, why in the world should the high and holy God care about me at all? Who am I that the Lord of all the earth, we're gonna hear this song, Lauren's gonna play it for us as we take communion in a minute. Who am I that the Lord of all the earth should care for me, a sinner? And yet he leaves the 99 and comes after me. Who am I? That's a sign when you start to feel that way that your allegiance is shifting off of yourself and onto something much bigger and better than yourself. It starts to change you from the inside out as you grow in grace. Look at verses 15 and 16. They're describing the person who's under the lordship of Christ. He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly. He who despises the gain of oppressions. Who shakes his hands lest they hold a bribe. Who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking 
on evil. He will dwell on the heights. His place of defense will be the fortresses of rocks. His bread will be given to him. His water will be sure. There's a settled confidence that comes from having Christ on the king throne of your life. When Christ is your king, you dwell secure. Your needs are provided for. You understand that no matter what comes, you're going to be okay. Unlike the Assyrians who only value God and, and they, they only value increasing their empire, they don't value God at all. They just wanna increase their worldly gain. God's subjects see things in a different light. Look at verse 17. Your eyes will behold the king and his beauty. They'll see a land that stretches afar. Your heart will muse on the terror. Where is he who counted? Where is he who weighed the tribute? Those Assyrians that were counting the towers, that were looking over, where do they go? We'll muse over the things that you used to call terrifying. These people have been longing for security. They've been longing for a safe city. They've been longing for a kingdom of peace where they can plant their roots and flourish. And what they're finding is that when they're allegiant to the Lord, they have it. Look at the next verse, verse 18. We just read it. They'll muse on the towers. The enemy that once seemed so overwhelming is now gone. It's no big deal. We can dwell security, securely in this holy city that the Lord God Almighty has established for us only by establishing him as king over our lives, over our souls, over our hearts. Look at verse 20. This is the key verse. Behold Zion, the city of our appointed feast. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation. That's where this is going, an immovable tent whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cords be broken. In our series in the book of Acts, we saw that the church is an unstoppable force. Even though it's full of broken people like you and me, the church will reign forever. Isaiah shows us how good it is, how utterly good it is to pledge our allegiance to him. I pray that you will do that today. As we move into a time of communion and as our TV audience says goodbye, uh, we are going to see that it is the only way to live and flourish in this life and the next is when Christ is our king, when we are allegiant to him. We can put our ultimate allegiance in him because he fulfills every role we need in a leader. Look at verse 22, one of the coolest verses in this whole section. The Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. He's the one who knows right and wrong, who decides what's good for us. He's the one who gives us life-giving laws and commandments that lead to flourishing. And ultimately, he's the one who protects and rules over us as king. He's prophet, he is priest, he is king. He is Lord Jesus Christ. That last verse, this verse 24, shows us that although we're broken, although we're needy, once we belong to Christ, we are no longer sick. We become well. No inhabitant in the holy city will say, I'm sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. They will become well through Jesus Christ, the great physician. There's no more need to be broken in spirit. 
There's no more need to be poor in spirit to understand your own desperate need for salvation because on that day, you will be saved fully. That's where all this is going. So let's return to the Lord today. There's no better example of how to do that than through the Lord's Supper. Let's put our trust in him fully. Let's understand that we are broken and confess our brokenness to him. Let's put our ultimate allegiance not in a political authority and definitely not in ourselves, which is what we most often do, but in the one true king who has the power to heal us and to save us. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that your word tells us that although we are more flawed and broken than we realize, although we cannot save ourselves, this is actually good news. It's good news because in our weakness, your power is made perfect. God, I've, I've talked with people this week who are struggling physically, whose bodies are breaking down. Help them to remember, oh Lord, that in our human frailty, in our human weakness, you are more real and more close to us than ever. And God, for those of us who think that we're young and that we're healthy and that we have things going in a good direction, help us to remember that apart from you, we have nothing and that with you, we have everything. Lord God, I've seen so many people make a train wreck out of their lives before they realize that you are all they need. May you spare us that crisis of having to be brought to rock bottom before we understand that you are all we need. Thank you, God, that you are a God of second chances and third and fourth and millionth chances. That your grace, although it is not cheap, it never runs out. There is no depth that we can fall that you cannot bring us back to yourself. God, I pray that as we move into this time of communion, that you would enable all of us to approach you in an intimate way as our Lord and Father and Savior. I pray that you would enable the, the sins in our lives to be removed as far as east is from west so that we can come before you with a clear conscience, approach boldly to the throne of grace and draw close to you today in holy communion through the blood of Christ and through his resurrection. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.